And this morning, we're starting a, kind of starting a new sermon series or going back to one that we've been working through. If you've been here over the last year, we've been working through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that is found in Matthew's Gospel. We're calling this sermon series Centred, and we're in part number three. So the vision behind this series is, as we reflected individually as a church community and as we looked around the church at large, realizing actually there is there are so many alternatives, so many things that are fighting for our attention, so many things that we can use to place our security in, place our identity in, get our morals, get our ethics, get our way of viewing the world. There are so many things that saying, hey, I've got the answer. And we thought actually, as followers of Christ, it's essential that we be centered in and on the person of Jesus, his life and his words. And what better place to do that than in the Sermon on the Mount? Because if you look at Scripture, all of Scripture is in the inspired Word of God. It, all, it is all useful for living and teaching. But there is a sense that it all points towards something as well, and it all points towards the person of Jesus. And within the life of Jesus, if you want to kind of find, kind of the, boil down what Jesus thought, what Jesus taught, you go to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the place where we get the essence of what he is about and what he taught. And that there's something there that could speak into our lives individually as a church, as the church at large, to say, this is how we are to be as God's people in the world. That in a Christian world where, yeah, individually, there's so many things fighting for us. Our attention, there's church in many places in crisis, particularly moral crisis. That the church at large at the moment isn't particularly a good witness to the world. And how we can change those things is focusing back on the person of Jesus and what he said. And the Sermon on the Mount comes at a time of Jesus' ministry where he's been out and he's done some healings, he's done some teaching. And his kind of people are realizing like, oh man, this guy's got something. Like he's exercised some demons, he's healed some people. You're like... We need it, and crowds gather around him. It's like he's got something, crowds from not just where Jesus is from, but all the surrounding areas think, man, this man's got something that we need. Let's just get to him and see what he has to offer. And these crowds gather around him, and he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, we're going to start with Matthew chapter 6. We're going to Read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 as our passage this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, whether on your phones or hard copies, feel free to open them up and we'll read from Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, 
then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So our passage this morning comes at a start of kind of a, a collection of kind of examples that Jesus is giving. Before this, we've talked around kind of Jesus talking around behavior and our hearts. If you remember, he talked through things like the law and that we are meant to live lives that are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. We are meant to live holy and pure lives as the followers of Christ. That as the law says, the kind of the, there's some baseline things like we probably shouldn't murder, probably shouldn't commit adultery, we probably shouldn't like seek revenge on our enemies. Like some pretty baseline things that the law says. But then Jesus kind of takes it further of like actually it's not just about murder, it's how we deal with anger in our heart. It's not just about acts of adultery, it's about lust, and you need to sort that out. It's not just about not seeking revenge on your enemy, it's about actually loving your enemy. This call of, don't just not do the negative stuff, but you actually have to transform your heart. And then from that, he's moved into, so don't do the negative stuff, and now we've moved into the section where he looks at Actually, here are the po- some positive things. Here are some spiritual practices, some spiritual rhythms. And now let's examine the motivations behind why you do these things. And if you've been around the place, this place this year, we've talked a lot about spiritual rhythms, spiritual disciplines, that as a church this year, we've really lent into, we want to be a people who pray, bless, notice, rest. That every day we pray, we bless someone in a meaningful way once a week, that we notice how God is speaking to us through his scriptures and that we rest once a week. That we engage in these spiritual practices, these spiritual rhythms, not that we're earning our way to God, but through church history, through scripture, there's a sense that those practices, for whatever reason, God seems to show up and we experience his grace. So as we enter into those practices, we will hear him speak and move in our lives in new ways and over the next few weeks we're going to look at some of these practices actually and what's the heart motivation when we turn up to these and we start this morning with something like bless of giving to the needy so I want to start this morning with the opening couple of verses which kind of set the scene so when when you give to the needy do not announce it with trumpets but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Through all these spiritual practices we're going to look at, there's this assumption that we're doing them. There's not this like, if you give to the needy, then check your motivations. This is assumption that the people of God give to the needy. This is what we do as the people of God. And I think this is not new For the people reading, they would think, yeah, of course, this is as we look back through the Holy Scriptures and how God's worked, how God's always worked and called us to work. He asks us to care for the needy. That this is what we're invited to do. So I want to go through a couple of verses that kind of illustrate this. So in Deuteronomy 15, 11, in the law it says there will always be in the land therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in hand in the law there's this commandment if there are needy people living amongst you 
you look after them. That's what we do. In Proverbs, which Jesus is probably referencing here, it says in Proverbs 19:17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they've done. That the wisdom says, this is what we do as the people of God. We lend to the poor, we give to the poor. Give to those in need. And throughout scripture, that's kind of linked with a couple of ideas, I think, of why we do this. And the first is that we give to the needy out of a place, out of a recognition that we were once needy and God provided, God showed up, God met us, his grace was often more than we expected, more than we deserved. That this is how often these verses kind of end with these phrases of do this to the foreigner, to the widow, to the orphan because you were once like that and I did it for you. That is one of the reasons we do it. And the second is that actually God is the provider. All that we have is because of him and only because of him. And we get practices that kind of work this out. In Leviticus 19, 9 to 10, we get in the law this passage, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Now, as a farmer, there's, like, there's, help, there's helpful ways to do your farming that's going to produce a good crop. Like you have a part to play. There's unhelpful ways to farm. But at the end of the day, if it rains or if it doesn't rain, you are not in control. There's an element of if you are growing a crop, it is God who is providing that for you. He provided the plants, he created them, and they're ongoing, sustaining. He is doing that. So the crop that Israelites produced, this is an acknowledgement that actually it is all his, and he's asked, you can have like 90% of it, just leave the edges for me, and I because I want them to go to the poor, to the needy, to the foreigner, to the people who don't have enough. That God is the God of nature, the God of creation, who gives us, who sustains us, who provides, and that is why we give to the poor, because he has provided for us. Everything that we have is his, so we just pass it on. And around Jesus' time, there's kind of, as the temple fell, they kind of create, the rabbis, the Jewish tradition, created this like, what does it mean to live a pious Jewish life? And there were three practices that they did. First was Torah study, Torah reading, studying the scriptures. The second was prayer. And the third was almsgiving or giving to the poor. Those were the three key elements of being a pious Jew not long after Jesus. And almsgiving in this was seen as an appropriate replacement for sacrifice. We don't have a temple where we can sacrifice animals anymore. What is an appropriate replacement for that? What achieves similar things? And as a sacrifice of our food, of our money to the poor, that is a key part of the Jewish faith. So for us as the people of God, there is this assumption reading Jesus' words that if we are his people, we give to the poor. We give to the needy, we give to those without. That's part of what we do. But Jesus in this does, 
kind of says this isn't enough. We actually have to examine our motivations. Why are we doing this? In our passage, he says, when you give to the needy, do not announce with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. There's this challenge to people who announce, hey guys, I'm giving to the poor. Have you noticed? Did you see? And it's not necessarily the act of doing it visibly. Like, it's not like we have to do everything in secret and anonymity. It's the idea of we, these people, he's calling out people who do it publicly because then they get noticed. Instead, we're called to be a people who don't focus in on ourselves. So then, like Jesus mentions earlier in the sermon, so that we can be salt and light, the city on a hill that people notice, like these people are different. Something's different about them. And I know for me, this is challenging. And sometimes it's in the one-off transactions, the one-off noticing someone I feel like is in need and giving them something where I think, oh, did I give that to like, was that for them, was that for God, or was that for me to feel good about myself, or for me to be noticed, or for me to be praised? And sometimes it's also in the longer picture like, it's not just a one-off act, but it's like, actually, like, I want to build up this reputation of I'm a good person, I'm a caring person, I'm a loving person. Some of us even, like, get into careers which are orientating around this, like, I'm in, I'm a loving, I'm a caring, have you, does someone notice? And it may not come from dark, but it might just, I need to be noticed. But the challenges here are we doing this for other people to notice? When we do good things, when we help, when we support, when we get behind, God challenges what is your motivation behind it. And one theologian I was reading this week was made a really challenging statement. He said, when you are doing it for praise, particularly in this you're giving to the needy, you are literally paying for praise. You're paying someone to give you praise back. And the challenge is to not, yeah, to notice those motivations. And I think, as I thought about the ways to notice if your motivations are right, as we help, as we care, as we support, there are a few different ways that we notice it. And it's often when it doesn't go well, what bubbles up within us when we do something for someone, when we care for someone, do we grumble when our actions aren't noticed? Do we get envy or jealous when other people get credit for what we've done? Or they don't do as much as we do, but they get more credit for what they do than we get. Do we get irritated when the thing that we offer, our donation, doesn't lead to the result we want? Or do we get preoccupied with doing the maths, counting out how much can I give, how much can I, and be noticed. And Jesus says, let's challenge that and ask us, we need to change our motivations. And the question is, okay, then what is the proper motivation? And I, I don't know if it's me, but I feel like as modern Christians, as modern Westerners, 
the language that Jesus used is quite surprising, quite challenging. He uses the language of reward. That as followers of Christ, actually we're not called to altruism, to do good things because they're good things. We're not doing things because of their intrinsic merit or even that it'll make us better people. We're doing it for another kind of reward, but we are doing it for a reward. And this is language that Jesus uses in multiple places. And not reward in the sense of like we're earning our relationship with God, but there is something that we get. C.S. Lewis talks about this as, when he's reading through this, as reward, as appropriate reward for what you have done. And his example is, one of his examples is around marriage. That an inappropriate reward for marriage is money. If you're marrying someone because they are wealthy and you're going to get into all that money, that's an inappropriate reward for marriage. But if you're getting into marriage because of lifelong commitment and love and companionship, it's like that's probably actually a more appropriate reward for marriage. And he also speaks of like learning a language. Learning for him, it was ancient Greek. The reward of learning ancient Greek is that over time, he slowly got to appreciate ancient Greek poetry. And like there wasn't a moment of like, oh, I finally get it, but there was a slow appreciation. And I think as followers of Christ, it's like, okay, what, the reward isn't praise of others, but I think it's the reward of participation in Christ and his kingdom coming. There's a particular vein of Christianity which, rightly or wrongly, gets quite a lot of flack, but I think they're going after something that speaks to this. And this is those who use, talk about the prosperity gospel. And I think the truth that the prosperity gospel preachers are going after is that faith isn't just about getting your ticket to heaven at the end. It's not about what happens, not just about what happens when we die, but the gospel should affect all areas of our life right now. It, that actually, as we come to Christ, things do change. That often, as you build your relationship with Christ, stuff's going to get worked out in you, and you're probably going to be a better person. You might get a better job because actually you've worked through some stuff. That's not what you're aiming for, but that might be a consequence. That actually economics and money and health right now, not just at the end, but right now matter, and God wants to speak into that and move into that. Even in this example, is around, at its heart, is around money. And God's saying money economics is important not that we give so that we if we give so much then we'll get more back but it's no as we give we create a community where everyone has enough that is our reward that if we miss something of the gospel should have applications and implications for our life right now into our health into our finances into our relationships not just at the end but right now that's something of the reward that I think we want to go after.
And I think the frightening challenge for me reading this passage is it talks about those who seek after the praise of others and they don't necessarily get a punishment. That it's not like they sought the praise of others and got punishment. They got what they were after and it's kind of meaningless. That we can be doing all these good things looking after others, feel like we're becoming better, more caring, more loving. But Jesus says, you might actually just be treading water. If the reward you're seeking after is others' approval, others telling you you're good, actually that's going to be pretty fleeting and unreliable and inconsistent and probably isn't going to add up to a whole lot. There's not a punishment, but you're probably not going to go anywhere. But in the midst of this, I think there is a little positive encouragement. For those of us who work in areas, live with people, serve given situations, we were actually not noticed. That we're working away by ourselves, maybe caring for others who will never give us something in return. And God says, actually, I do notice. You are noticed in those situations. And there is a reward for that. So I guess in the midst of this, okay, how we meet kind of this default, care for the needy, check our motivations and have this, check unhelpful motivations and call to have this motivation of, okay, this reward of God and his kingdom how do we get there? And our passage speaks around, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That there's a secrecy to our giving. Bonhoeffer talks about this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as forgetfulness. He frames it as, as our eyes are on Christ, we lose our overpowering sense of self. If our eyes are on Jesus and following him, listening to him, being faithful to what he is calling us to in each moment, we kind of forget what our hands are up to because our eyes are up here. We're not this, I'm doing this, as anyone noticed, kind of this self thing. We're looking at him and we kind of forget the self-forgetfulness Bonhoeffer talks about, that our call is not to be virtuous or good people at the end of the day, our call is to be disciples, that we'll probably receive virtue and goodness, but that is not our goal, and if our goal is to look at Christ and pursue him as disciples, we will actually become witnesses to the world as salt, as light, but we can't do that if we're constantly looking at what we're doing and how it's being received. This plays out at the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus speaks about the end times in Matthew chapter 25. And I'll read this. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did you, we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see, see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And it continues of like the people who didn't notice and didn't do it, and it talks around eternal damnation, which to me the second half makes sense of like, it makes sense to like be so self-absorbed and you don't notice the need and you don't meet the need. Like that makes sense, but this first half doesn't make sense to me because these people did good things and didn't even realize. They cared for people and Jesus says, I've noticed how you did that, and that was caring for me. And they're oblivious. They're like, ah. Oh. They were unaware of all the good they had done because I think their eyes were focused on Christ and they had this hiddenness, this forgetfulness from themselves. They actually, when this passage speaks around doing stuff in secret, there's this funny thing of it's not necessarily secret from other people. It's somehow secret from ourselves that as we follow Christ, we become better people and we don't even realize it. We don't even know that as our eyes are fixed on him, he does a work in us and we care for others with a motivation that isn't self-serving. And as I reflected on this in my personal life, I think for me, it's quite, I don't know if I'm convincing, I feel it's quite easy to, make people think that I'm caring and loving and do good things for people. But it's often in the home life where it kind of, that's where it bubbles up of like, do all these nice things out in the day and then get home of like, Sydney, no one noticed. I didn't, get the, I didn't get what I wanted. Like those are the places where it bubbles up. You're like, oh, actually, maybe this isn't coming from a good place. And I think, Jesus is in this is inviting us in those moments where actually stuff bubbles up. Let's examine it. Let's see what's going on there. Let's use it as an opportunity to actually move out from looking up to look up at Christ and see, I want to pursue you. I want to chase after you. When I'm looking down, I'm probably looking for praise. I'm looking for security. I'm looking for affirmation. I'm looking for love. And maybe places that I won't find it how I want it. And I'm going to be doing good things with ulterior motives. And Christ says, come, look at me. And then your Father will see what is done in secret and will, will reward you. Man, I'm struggling with that word today. Um, but that is the invitation. That we're not called to be good people or virtuous people. We're called to be disciples. That as we follow after Jesus, he is going to transform us, work in us.
that as we care for the needy, care for the widow, care for the orphan, care for the foreigner, God wants to do a transforming work of bringing his kingdom into those situations if we will let our motivations be in the right place. I want to invite the band up this morning as I close. And as I close, I want to invite you to reflect. Is there an area of your life, a place, a person, a relationship where you are caring for someone you feel like is in need that God might be drawing to the surface and wanting to check your motivations? And not your motivations just to condemn, but to say, look up at me. that as we care for the needy as the people of God because that's just what they do. That's just what we do. We'll see God's kingdom come. We'll see our true reward, a reward worth chasing after. Not the praise, not the adoration of each other, of the world around us, but the reward that the, the Father promises us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God that everything that we have, everything that we will have is blessing from you because you are a good father. That when we have been in need, if we have ever been in need, you have provided. Lord, help us to be a community who cares for the needy amongst ourselves but out in the world, Lord. Not out of a place wanting praise of adoration for ourselves Lord we don't want that we don't deserve it but may we do it for your glory and for your kingdom because that is the reward that we want that is the reward that is worth chasing after lead us by your spirit Transform us in hidden and surprising and secret ways. In your name, Lord Jesus. Well, thanks for listening. We hope this teaching has served you well and that you've sensed something of God's voice speaking to you. If there's any way that we can help or pray for you, support you in any way, we'd love to be able to do that. You can find out our contact info on our website at thewellnz.org or flick us an email at support at thewellnz.org. God bless you. We look forward to hearing from you soon.